So we are here in the last trip to Jerusalem, his last Passover. And of course, that's, um, that becomes what we call Holy Week. It's what we remember last week. We have taken, you know, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 13, you're, you're in the upper room in chapter 13. Uh, you, you have the foot washing, all that we'll remember next Thursday night. Um, and then he starts talking. He does a lot of talking in John's Gospel on, on that last night. So John chapter, the rest of chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16 is Jesus speaking to his disciples there following the Last Supper. Uh, chapter 17 is a lengthy prayer that Jesus offers on behalf of us, the church, in, in chapter 17. Then chapter 18, which is where we're at, are the events that begin to unfold uh, there in the upper room. So uh, where we've gotten to so far, we've gotten past his arrest, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 18 of John. We've gotten him through some of John's trials. If you add all the Gospels together, there are about six trials. You can put that word trial in quotation marks. Uh, They're sort of kangaroo courts. Uh, But there are six trials depicted in all of the Gospels, uh, if you put them all together. Um, they're, they're done in the darkness of the night. Uh, in John's Gospel, verse 12, he goes to Annas, who is the real high priest according to the Jews. Uh, then he goes to Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas, who, according to the Romans, is functioning as a high priest. So in John's Gospel, it starts out in a, in a trial with, with Jewish authorities. Uh, you, see, you see Peter and the unnamed disciple. We've looked at it already, Jesus, uh, Peter and the unnamed disciple in the courtyard there of the high priest. Um, that's where Peter um, denies Christ. Um, then you see, um, because of the Jewish leadership, the Jewish temple leadership, the Judean religious leaders who, who, who orchestrate the death of Jesus, they don't have the authority to, to execute under Roman occupation. So they have to go to... Um, Pontius Pilate. So last week we got him, we got Jesus before Pilate, um, and then um, we're continuing with um, Jesus before Pilate. So where we left off last week, John 18, verse 33. So, um, and just to make sure you know why Pilate's running around so much, what you saw last week is when the religious authorities came and got Pontius Pilate up so early on this morning, probably out of bed. Um, the, the religious leaders will not go into the, um, the abode of Pontius Pilate because that would declare them, that would desecrate them, that would declare them unclean for the celebration of the Passover. So they want to be clean for the celebration of the Passover. Um, they don't mind murdering an innocent man, but they want to be clean for the for the celebration of the Passover. So they make Pilate come out to them. And so uh, Pilate's kind of going out and in a little bit here because um, he wants to have some private conversation with this strange Galilean preacher that is so agitated religious leaders in Jerusalem. He wants to have some private uh, conversation with them. And that's where we pick up. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. So Pilate, again, ruling on behalf of Rome, who has left Caesarea Maritima on the beautiful Mediterranean Sea and come to Jerusalem to keep the peace during a festival. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. 
I talked last week where I thought his headquarters was. It's either in the Antonio Fortress where the soldiers are housed. I tend to think he did not stay in the Antonio Fortress where the soldiers' barracks were. I think he co-opted Herod's palace there on the other side of the old city of Jerusalem. But wherever, wherever Pilate is, I'm sure he's not suffering much. Wherever Pilate is comfortably, um, they, the religious leaders bring Jesus there. So they have to find where, G, where Pilate is in his headquarters. So Pilate entered his headquarters again because he's been outside talking to the Jewish religious leaders and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, again, what is the charge? And there's two charges depending on which group you're looking at. What is the charge being brought against Jesus? Blasphemy from the Jewish perspective. From the Jewish, from the Jewish religious leader's perspective, blasphemy. Pontius Pilate couldn't care less about Jewish religious squabbles. So the Jewish religious leaders know that Pontius Pilate's not going to intervene, do anything about a Jewish religious squabble. You know, they don't care that Jesus claims to be God. From a Roman perspective, they said Augustus Caesar was God. They said Julius Caesar was God. The Romans made gods all over the place. So they, 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 religiously, there's not an issue with the Romans. So, uh, yeah, for, from the Jewish religious perspective, he's, he's blaspheming. He's claiming equality with God. So they have to have another charge to get Rome involved. So what is the charge that they sort of manufacture to a certain extent? And you really see it in John's Gospel. What is the charge they manufacture in order to get Pontius Pilate to, to murder Jesus by the state? Sedition or treason. You know, he's claiming to be king of the Jews. Well, Caesar rules here. You know, it's like I, if I all of a sudden started saying, I'm president of the United States. Y'all would say to me, well, there's, we already have one. Well, they already have a king of the Jews. They have a ruler of the Jews. So that would get Rome's attention. If, if a rebel, an insurrectionist, a terrorist is claiming some authority in Rome. So they have to say to Pontius Pilate, he's claiming to be our king. And we, we know Caesar wouldn't like that. Um, that's not what the Jewish religious leaders are agitated about. From the, for them it's blasphemy. So that's why Pontius Pilate obviously asked, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Uh, then notice what Pilate says. I think he has a sneer in his voice. Notice what he says, verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Yeah, he would, it would be an insult if you thought he was a Jew. He's Roman. Am I a Jew? You know, whoever was ruling for Rome there in Judea, it was not a plum appointment. Uh, you, you had to kind of not be high up the hierarchy of Rome to get to, get to rule in Judea on behalf of Rome because the Jews were a bizarre people to the Romans. Weird laws, real weird rules, weird customs, weird about what they would eat, weird about what rooms they would walk into. So, yeah, they were not an easy group to, to, to rule. So um, the, the Romans respected them because they'd been around longer than Rome had been around. But they didn't like them. They thought they were a weird bunch of people. So you can hear this sneer in Pilate's voice. Am I a Jew? 
your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Um, so he starts talking about a kingdom. And Pilate has enough sense. Now, he's, he's making it clear. Jesus is making it clear. He, he has a kingdom, but he's making it clear it's not a kingdom that this world would recognize. It's a kingdom unlike anything this world could construct. But Pontius Pilate at least is smart enough to know in his political world that if you have a kingdom, you have to be what? You have to be a king. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. Because again, they, they're talking past each other here. They, they mean different things by kingdom. They mean different things by king. But Pilate realizes he's making some claim to having some sort of kingdom. So he has to be a king of, to some extent. So Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born... So he's acknowledging, yes, I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So here's where the word truth enters the discussion. Again, Jesus and Pilate talking about kings and kingdoms and truth would be a whole lot like us talking to the world around us today about kings and kingdoms and truth. We talk past each other. We mean very different things. I'll promise you we mean very different things about truth than the world around us. You're going to see in this text, I think, that Pontius Pilate is, we would say today, Pontius Pilate has embraced what we call post postmodern philosophy. You know, I, I, I'm convinced, you don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, but I'm convinced we Christians should take some time studying postmodern theology and postmodern philosophy. That's a whole school of thought. It's a lot spoken about, postmodernism. Um, a lot of people are very pro-postmodern. Uh, there's authors out there making their, a lot of them making their living, promoting the postmodern philosophy, postmodern theology. Uh, it was when I was doing graduate work through um, UNC Charlotte uh, back around 2005, we were starting to hear more and more the use of the word postmodern, and postmodern was getting more and more um, sort of uh, molded into a, a very, very, on their perspective, a very consistent form of thought. So yeah, go Google, buy you a little simple book that says Introduction to Postmodernism. Um, big deal right now, postmodernism. Uh, you may act like a postmodern even though you've never read the book, Introduction to Postmodernism. Uh, there's a lot that exhibits what we mean today by postmodern thought. But where Pilate starts, under, starts acting like a postmodernist of the 21st century is where he starts dealing with this topic of truth. Postmodernism firmly believes, and you can read the writing from now to you leave this world, uh, postmodernism firmly believes, and they make the argument, 
that truth is completely relative. You have your truth, I have my truth. You know, and you hear that language sometimes. My truth is, your truth is. That's 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 part. There's not complete totality of postmodern thought, but that's part of postmodernism. Yeah, truth is relative. You have your truth, I have my truth. So we just need to join hands and sing kumbaya and get along. You have your truth, I have my truth. Now, that's postmodern theology. And it makes a weird amount of sense to people in this world. You have your truth. You find your truth. You live by your truth. And let me live by my truth. Now, our, our forefathers, and I don't have to go back to about 1950s and before to say our forefathers. Our forefathers up to about 1950 would have thought we've lost our mind. You know, two plus two has to always equal three. It can't be three for me and five for you. So there's never been throughout Western civilization, Plato knew nothing about it, Socrates knew nothing about it. Throughout Western civilization, there's never been anybody that would have, I mean, you'd have got put away somewhere if you started saying, you have your truth, I have my truth, and we may vary greatly on what truth is. Um, Postmoderns make that case strongly now. You have your truth, I have my truth. Who knows what truth is? Um, but yeah, there, 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 there's not anything called truth, capital T, in postmodern thought. And you know, and, and postmoderns would say the quicker we know that, the quicker we'll get along with each other. Just you have your truth, I have my truth. There, there's no search for truth. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of my academic life studying Western civilization. Uh, you know, I've been told in the last decade I can't even use the phrase anymore because it's ethnocentric. You know, I don't think I'm being anti-Eastern civilization. I just don't know much about Eastern civilization. You know, I, one time I did teach at a college level. I did teach Buddhism and Hinduism. I, knew, I learned enough about Buddhism and Hinduism to teach at a college level. But basically, I don't know Eastern religion. I don't know Eastern thought. You know, I can't, I can't teach you on Confucianism. My, my, my academic world has always been Western civilization, you know, sort of from Palestine, Judea, through Europe here. That's, that's just Western civilization. Greco-Roman, Jewish, European. So, um, yeah, my, I just know Western civilization, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to be offensive, you know, if I use that phrase, Western civilization. I don't... I, you know, maybe that's a topic for another day. I don't know that I think Western civilization is superior to Eastern civilization. Um, I may have some opinions. I don't think all cultures are created equal. Now, postmodernism says all cultures are created equal. I can show you some cultures I don't think are created equal. And if you think about it long enough, you know there's some cultures not created equal. You know, I don't see anybody standing in line to go find a cannibalistic culture. All cultures are not created equal. But um, in postmodernism, you can't say that. All cultures are created equal. We just don't understand each other. Everybody has different truths. You have your truth, I have my truth. Yeah, to the 1950s, that would have been a bizarre way to argue. I mean, there's been voices like that throughout history in the Western civilization that talk that way, but they were never consensus. Well, in postmodernism, it's almost consensus in our culture. 
You got your truth, I got my truth. You know, you can't say anything about one culture can be superior to another culture. It's just different ways of seeing life. So um, Pontius Pilate here sounds like he's almost taken a course on 21st century postmodernism. As soon as Jesus says that he came into the world to bear witness to not just his truth, but to bear witness to the truth, uh, and then he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see a perfect 21st century postmodern response from Pilate. Pilate says to Jesus, and says, what is truth? Who can know truth? What is truth? You can't, don't worry your little heads about trying to discover what truth is, because we're going to all disagree about what truth is. Now, for Pontius Pilate, his world really did sort of believe in truth. The Epicureans were arguing for what they said was truth. The Stoics were arguing for what they said was truth. The Cynics were arguing for what they said was truth. But they all had some understanding that somewhere out there, there is the truth. Um, but Pontius Pilate's probably tired of all that arguing, and he just says, what is, what is truth? So he doesn't even want to go there. He can't even have that conversation with Jesus. Uh, that's like in, in, in our world today, it's, it's like me trying to have a debate with a secularist. We, we, we talk past each other. I believe there is such a thing called truth. That person may or may not. He certainly doesn't believe that, you know, I can, I can impose my truth on him and say that two plus two equals four regardless of what you think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting uh, 20 years concerning this topic of truth. Uh, there's history that goes all the way back to um, situational ethics. The, the scholar named Fletcher, for those of you that may remember your psychology from college, it, it's, it's been growing for a while. It, it's blossomed now into just all, all ethics are situational, all ethics, all truth is relative, and truth itself is relative. That's an aside about truth. I will not charge you any extra for that. But it's just fascinating how Pontius Pilate, I think just because he's caught between Roman, Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world, he's just frustrated. What is truth? He doesn't know how much he's echoing the 21st century. Anyway, what is truth? Now, the fascinating thing, what John wants you to see is truth is standing in front of Pontius Pilate when he says it. It was just in chapter 14, while he was in the upper room, that Jesus said to his followers, I am the way, the what, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Probably in this world, one of the most controversial things Jesus ever said. And, you know, people just can't hear Jesus saying that. But he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. So I think what John wants you to say, because he, he remembers what he wrote just a few chapters earlier, where Jesus professes to be, I am the truth. Here's truth in front of Pontius Pilate. Again, back to what we've said about John's gospel. In John's gospel, he, he paints the picture the way he wants to paint the picture. A little different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one thing you see in John's gospel is that Jesus is very much in control here. So what John is making obvious here is Pilate is not standing in judgment on Jesus. Jesus is standing in judgment on Pontius Pilate. Pilate's the one who comes out looking weak and indecisive. 
and not knowing how to act. You know, a little pitiful here as he's being forced. He's allowing himself to be forced, to be used by a small group of Jewish religious leaders. Anyway, so um, yeah, John wants you to remember what Jesus said just a little bit earlier. Here, truth is standing in front of Pontius Pilate. And he says, what is truth? Anyway, keep going. After he said this, he went back. Poor Pontius Pilate, he looks so weak. By the way, what we have of Pontius Pilate written elsewhere, outside the New Testament, we have a lot. Everywhere else, he looked ruthless and strong and powerful. He actually will eventually, after a decade in Judea, will get recalled to Rome because he keeps complicating the situation in Rome by making the Jews mad and not even knowing it. We have a lot of history. He gets recalled back to Rome. He ends up being sent to Gaul, where, according to Eusebius, he commits suicide. Um, probably makes sense even what we know about Pontius Pilate from here. But yeah, the picture of Pontius Pilate in, in John's gospel is one of weakness. So here he's running in, in and out. You know, I'd have told the Jews, yeah, you want to stay clean for, for Passover, but you're trying to murder somebody that I... He's go, Pilate's going to declare Jesus guilt, guiltless. He's going, to, he's going to declare Jesus not to be guilty three times in this text. If I was Pontius Pilate, I'd say, you Jews, you're trying to murder an innocent man. If, if you want me to listen to you, you at least got to come in my house. I'm not running back and forth, inside and outside, so that you can be ritually pure for your celebration of Passover. But Pilate's trying to keep the peace. And he does eventually get called back to Rome because he's, he's not always successful at keeping the peace. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. That's the first time. He's going to do it two more times. I find no guilt in him. Well, Pilate have some backbone. But he just doesn't have it here. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom. He's trying to find a loophole. Sounds like a politician. He's trying to find a loophole. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. We don't know about this custom really anywhere else, but we know about it here in the Gospel of John. Evidently, the Jews had a custom that Rome to to get some goodwill from the Jews, would release a, a Jewish prisoner at Passover. So, Paul said, uh, so Pontius says, you've got a custom that, that, that we should, I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Well, I could have told him what the Jewish religious leaders' answers were going to be to that one. They cried out again, not this man. And here's something you probably have never seen because you don't do Hebrew much. Don't you notice what, what happens here? No, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. You probably do know Barabbas being a robber. Your study note probably does tell you he's a listes. That's the Greek word here. He's, a, he's not a robber like a mugger or a petty thief. He's a robber. A listes is an insurrectionist, a terrorist. Again, that's why Rome has him in custody. He's an insurrectionist. He's gone against Roman power. But what you probably have not noticed is what the name Barabbas means. Don't even look at a footnote at this point. I'm going to show you that you know Hebrew. Bar means son of. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Bar means son of. 
Abbas. Take off the S. Abba. So what does Barabbas's, Barabbas's name mean? Son of the Father. John wants to make sure you notice that. Here's two sons of the Father before Pontius Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders, and they let the wrong one go. Yeah, he's named Barabbas for a purpose in the gospel. He's son of the Father. So two sons of the Father are right here in front, and they choose to let the insurrectionists, the terrorists, go. Then Pilate took Jesus. Remember, these numbers are not in the original. They're just there for you to be able to find them in the Bible. Keep going, chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, you flog, you flog for the purpose of torture. They would flog with something they would call the scorpion. They would take leather strips and embed uh, pieces of glass and pieces of metal to where that when they whipped you with the leather strips, it would draw blood. The scorpion, the sting of it would be terrible. So they, they take Jesus, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I think, and it's going to be obvious in the text in a moment, Pilate's hoping that they, if he can draw some blood, beat Jesus to within an inch of his life, these Jewish religious leaders will be satisfied. He's trying to not kill Jesus for whatever reason. One of the things you do know from Matthew's gospel what did Pontius Pilate's wife say to Pontius Pilate about Jesus? Have nothing to do with it because she had a dream that he shouldn't do anything to against this man. So he's trying. Maybe he's listening to his wife. He's trying. I think he's having him flogged, hoping, and you'll see it in a second, that if he just could beat Jesus to within an inch of his life, I think Mel Gibson gets it right as far as what it would look like. So it seems to be flogged. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. The soldiers are mocking Jesus. Because again, the, the Jewish charge is sedition or treason, king of the Jews. So they mock him. They put a crown on his head. Some of the thorns, I'm sure, are sticking out like a crown, but I'm sure some of them are sticking in to his scalp. So they mocked Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and, and, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. Purple is a color, color of royalty. Purple was very expensive to, to, create a, to create a purple dye. It probably, by the way, was probably a deep, deep, deep red robe that belonged to a Roman soldier, but mockingly a purple robe, like a robe of royalty. They come up to him. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. Instead of saying Ave Caesar, they're saying Ave King of the Jews. They're mocking him. And they're striking him with their hands. So the soldiers are having fun with Jesus. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That's number two. I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, Christians know that there's something important about behold the man. If you go to Jerusalem today, if you're walking up around where the Antonio Fortress would be, they'll show the Ekihomo Arch. 
Um, Ekihomo is Latin for behold the man. There's an Ekihomo arch there. It, it actually dates to the time of Hadrian, not to the time of um, Tiberius. It dates to the time of Hadrian. So it's about 100 years after Jesus, but it's called the, uh, uh, the Ekihomo arch. We know that we, we remember there's famous painting of Pontius Pilate and Ekihomo, you know, pointing to Jesus. I'm not sure Christians pick up why it's been so important for the last 2,000 years that Pontius Pilate said, Behold the man. There's been two reasons that this has intrigued Christians for 2,000 years. One is um, um, the man, because Paul's going to make a lot out of the man Adam damned us to sin and hell. The man Jesus restores us. So that's, that's been made a lot out of in the last 2,000 years. The man who's going to, to, going to um, uh, cure what the man Adam gave to us. And that may be going on here. But probably from a Jewish perspective. Um, and you always need, particularly read John's Gospel, on two levels. There's the obvious, you know, should one, one, we need to let one man die for the sins of all of the, all of the Jews, Caiaphas said, which is true. You know, let's not get the Romans mad. Let's kill this one man to keep us all alive. But from John's perspective, that's true, but there's a deeper level. When Caiaphas says, one man should die for all the sin, for the sins of all. So in John's gospel, there's always two levels. He went out and it was night when Judas leaves. Well, yeah, it's night. Sun's gone down, but it's also night on another level. In John's gospel, you always have to see that, that, that um, two levels. Well, here when, when Pontius Pilate says, Behold the man... The Jews, they've read, their, they've read their Bible, the only Bible they had. The only Bible the early Christians had was what we call the Old Testament. They've read it. In 1 Samuel, when the Jews, the Israelites at that point, are saying to Samuel the prophet, we want a king like all other people. Give us a king like all other people. We know that God is our king but he can be sort of removed and we're, we're in chaos. Give us a king like all other people. And remember, if you remember First Samuel, uh, Samuel and God's working this out. God's not pleased, but God says, for the sinfulness of the people, I'll let them have what they want. I'll let them have a king. So it'll be like other people. They shouldn't want to be like other people, but that's what they were saying. Give us a king like other people. Uh, they're, they're hammering the prophet Samuel um, because up to that point, they're theocracy. God is ruling through the religious people. But they say, give us a king like other people, and they're hammering away at Samuel. Well, God gives them what they ask. They're going to eventually say they wish they didn't get what they asked for, but they're going to get. So they get their first king, which is who? Saul. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, around about verse 17. You don't have to do it right now, but guess what Samuel says when he shows them Saul. Behold the man. Here's your king. So again, is Jesus king of the Jews? Uh, yes and no. Not like Pontius Pilate thinks he's being accused of. He's not a rebel. He's not a politician. He's not trying to give Caesar uh, Tiberius a run for his money. But yes, he is king. He is ruler. He is ruler. So in John's gospel, you need to know your Hebrew Bible enough and read close enough to see both, both levels. So yeah, your mind goes back to when, 
when Samuel presented King Saul to the people. Behold the man. It's kind of a strange way to, you would think you'd say, behold the king. But even Samuel said, behold the man. Because the only king of the Israelite people is who? God. That's going to come into play in a minute. The only king is God. So that's what the Jewish people would have heard with this, behold the man. Um, he is a king. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Now again, Hollywood puts 12,000 people screaming that. Here's the chief priests and the officers, maybe 20 of them. Crucify him, crucify him. They said to him, Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him. For, number three, I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, and Pilate knew this, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. But we have no authority to kill him over religious matters. He's already been, they've talked about that. Rome has to, Rome, the state has to execute. But the Jews are saying, yeah, we do want him dead because, okay, you don't find guilt, but we, we say blasphemy. He says he's son of God. Well, again, that gets Pontius Pilate's attention because they had lots of sons of God, didn't they? Caesar claimed to be a son of God. Caesar Augustus printed coins that said son of God. Uh, they thought, they made gods all over the place. They were polytheistic. So when you said son of God, Pontius Pilate thought, well, you know, I can get in trouble with these sons of God in, in our world. So he, he at least he paid some attention to that. But anyway, so they're saying we have a rule that we say he can't call himself that. Uh, anyway, so notice what it said in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Keep in mind, he's already heard about the dream from his wife. He is, hears somebody be, claiming to be son of God. He's hearing it in a Roman perspective. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, he's, he's trying to find a loophole. He's trying to get out of this. He's a weak ruler. He's trying to get out of this. He enters again. Uh, he says, where are you from? Now, again, it's, that's meant on several different levels. In the Gospel of John, they argue about, is he from Galilee or is he from Judea? Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, which is Judea. So he can't be Messiah because he comes from the Galilee, but he really came from Bethlehem. You know that. Um, so Pontius Pilate's saying, please tell me you're not from Mount Olympus. Please tell me you're not from some divine location. Tell me you're not a real son of God. Tell me, your, you know, tell, me, tell me your zip code you're from here in this region. So where are you from? Because you know, he doesn't want to mess with somebody that... He doesn't want to mess with the Zeus or all those gods they had. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Uh, we will be reading next Friday night, I'm sure, from Isaiah chapter 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He... He was silent like a sheep being led to the slaughter. He gave no answer. Now, this is me. Don't mean to be disrespective. If Jesus would have been from where I grew up, in his, in his heart, he probably thought of Pontius Pilate. Well, bless his heart. When he said, where are you from? Anyway, he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. Pilate gets frustrated. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is calling the shots. Therefore, he who delivered me to you 
has the greater sin. Yeah, I almost feel sorry for Pontius Pilate. He's weak. But it's these religious leaders who want to murder Jesus who have the greater sin. Verse 12, we'll wrap it up. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. You know what, he, you know what they're doing. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha, um, which means side of a house. There's a couple spots in Jerusalem. We'll show you what could possibly be the Gabbatha. He brings Jesus out again, trying to get this, these leaders to let go of what they want. Verse 14, now it was the day of past preparation of Passover. Um, this warrants a whole evening's discussion, but I won't do it. Uh, John's gospel seems to want to paint Jesus being crucified same lamb, same time the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover meal. Which if you do that, it's beautiful, but if you do that, then the meal that they just had was not a Passover meal because they're just now slaughtering the lambs for the Passover meal. Um, I tend to want to sort of allow the four Gospels to um, coordinate, hear their unique voices, but it's okay to coordinate them. Um, most of us, when we see this now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Um, remember what we talked about Passover? You got the day of Passover, and then you had immediately following on Passover. Remember the next Jewish festival? The Festival of Unleavened Bread. So if Passover is really a seven-day observation. The Passover, then the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Well, particularly on this day, I think we're right, particularly on this day, he gets crucified on Friday. This is already, you know, it's already Friday. It's way past um, 6 a.m. It's, it's way past 6 a.m. So sorry, Friday is Friday. Day of preparation means the day of preparation for the beginning of um, the Sabbath, because the next day is going to be a Sabbath. That's how, why they have to get them off the cross. They have to get them off the cross on that Sabbath. And the next day, obviously, as always, is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in a sense, it is a day of preparation. So you can reconcile, you, you can reconcile John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and allow our schedule to be right. Last Supper on Thursday, crucifixion on Friday, Sabbath on Saturday. Anyway, now is the day of the preparation of the Passover. is about the sixth hour. John, Mark says he was put on the cross by the third hour. Uh, ancients always approximated. They don't have a watch. They're looking at the sun. So somewhere between third, fourth, fifth hour. Um, early in the morning, third hour would be 9 a.m. Sixth hour is what time? Noon. So at some point, by noon, he's, he's on the cross. Mark tells you uh, 3 a.m., I mean 9 a.m. So uh, it's, it's the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now he's mocking the Jews, but he's speaking truth too. Again, two levels. Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? He's mocking them. And this is one of the saddest statements in the New Testament for me. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. What would their faith say? We have no king but God. The whole Hebrew Bible says that over and over and over. That's why God didn't want to even give them Samuel or Saul. But here, to get what they want, they're willing to say just about anything. We have no king 
but Caesar. So verse 16, so he finally, Pontius Pilate relents. He gives Jesus over to them, to them, both the soldiers and the chief priest, it's ambiguous, to be crucified. So there you are. There you are. So we get to do the crucifixion. Next week, if you'll give me that, that privilege, we'll do crucifixion next week. So this is more than enough. I actually